kind of where everybody is. Slightly mountains is encouraged by the cold weather. But those of us are here, I think I'm going to hear a very fine lecture from Jack Herbert, whom I first knew. My past life is becoming not so much memory as history. <laughs> I can't remember which year. A lifetime ago, this yes. young man who was at... A, at well, Christ College, Christ, Christ, that's right. He was yeah. sent to me by Tom Head, who all those who are interested in Yates know and remember with great love in Cambridge, uh, because I was the only person at the time who seemed to be interested in William Blake. So Jack came to me as a young student, and uh, we had wonderful sessions together, at the end of which Jack took his Edmund and everything in William Blake, and has since been... Uh, first of all, I think you were in Japan for yes. <coughs> and brought back uh, something very rich from Japan. And that then you have since then uh, been teaching in the extramural school in Cambridge. And then um, I suppose all through these years you've also been perfecting your knowledge of the German romantics. Yes, I did one year as a research at the University of, of Münster before going to Japan. Oh, did you? Yes, and then came back and taught at the University of Munich. Oh, you taught at Munich? That's right, I taught at Munich before coming back to yes. Cambridge. This is really... I should have checked all that. That doesn't matter, Gaspar. That doesn't matter. But anyway, yeah. uh, the point is yeah. that Jack has been pointing out to me for a long time that the whole German romantic music the movement was something very different from the English preoccupations at that time, which were all in science and technology and external things, whereas Germany was traditionally deeply concerned with matters of the inner life, including, I think you would say, German music. Oh, absolutely, yes. And I will say something about German the music. The whole story okay. of Germany yeah. is one which myself had neglected all through my life, partly because I grew up in the First World War and then we were in the Second World War. So Germany somehow got mixed up and it is time we put it back. <laughs> <laughs> and Jack is giving the first of three lectures, which uh, is, I can't, again, I forgot the time. It doesn't matter. It's inner renaissance and the holistic approach. Yes. That's what I've called it. And it's a sort of introductory lecture. Yes, world. yes. Thank you, Kathleen. Um, if you come to my three talks, you will see that there are interconnecting themes going all the way through. And the, um, the substance behind this evening's title should be quite clear, Inner Renaissance and the Holistic uh, Approach. By way of introduction, I should perhaps explain why the German tradition when with any major culture such as that of Germany, there is bound to be a highly complex play of movements and currents with rich developments and or conflicts along the way. My overall title then isn't meant to be monolithic, but at the same time the period in question during which Germany came into its own culturally from, say, the birth of Goethe in 1749 to the death of Jung in 1961 is, historically speaking, relatively short, 
And the main aim of these three talks is to etch in, as I see it, the distinguishing characteristics of an aesthetic and philosophical practice quite different from our own. As an overall defining term, one talks of German idealism philosophically as one does of British empiricism, in spite of some exceptions to the contrary. In each tradition, I would say, a certain self-propelling force is at work, whatever the qualifications and critiques offered en route. Also to quote Herder, who spent much time preoccupied with this, each language tends to embody a national character and way of thinking, whatever the cross-cultural influences received, and as we shall see, at the start of the German tradition, there were clearly a good many. Now, in, 1800, in, uh, in 1810, the French-Swiss woman of letters, Madame de Stael, brought out her De l'Allemagne after a year-long tour through Germany, during which she visited Weimar and Berlin, where she met and became a friend of the distinguished romantic critic and theorist August Wilhelm Schlegel, to whom Coleridge was much indebted. As a guide, she had Henry Crabb Robinson, the diarist and the recorder of conversations with William Blake late on in his life, who was then studying at Jena and later was able to become one of those invaluable bridges between German and English culture. De l'Allemagne was immediately thought anti-French. All existing copies were destroyed by the government and Napoleon exiled her several times. But the book was republished in England in 1813 and translated the following year. In fact, all that Madame de Stael was doing was alerting the French as to what had been happening in Germany over the past decades. Um, that all this was highly important and that they shouldn't build, quote her now in English, a spiritual great wall of China around themselves. But of course, while doing this, and offering studies of Goethe, Schiller, Kant, and Fichte, she focused on what she thought was a natural opposition between the classical literature of the Latin races, with its stress on clarity and form, and the romantic literature of the northern and Germanic races, in which feeling rather than form, enthusiasm and nature, she's thinking of Sturm und Drang, storm and stress, and the soul are preeminent. Such simplified oppositionalism as this doesn't, as one would expect, hold up. There is Goethe's great conversion to classicism, for example, as a result of his Italian journey in 1786-88, to the result of which could later make him identify classicism with Das Gesunde, the healthy, and romanticism with Das Kranke, the sick, an equally stark oppositionalism containing perhaps truth of a kind. Nevertheless, as a generalization of some significance, Madame de Stael's formulation and gathering together of feeling, enthusiasm, nature, and soul under the rubric romantic can certainly be applied to the young Goethe and Schiller, together with other figures during their Sturm und Drang period, as, as it can to Novalis, Brentano, Eichendorf, and the great German lead tradition in music. As a movement and pervasive influence, <coughs> Excuse me. It goes pretty well all through the 19th century and beyond to the young Rilke and the Thomas Mann of that monumental romantic Märchen or fairy tale, Der Zauberberg, the Magic Mountain. Whatever ironies and distancings are involved in that work. 
Yes, it is quite natural and easy to maintain that the Germans are romantics par excellence. And so it is only fitting that it is A.W. Schlegel himself who coins the term romantic as applied to a certain kind of poetry, in Germany, of course, which Coleridge then imports. Now, one of the things romanticism implies is a thoroughgoing and exploratory concern with inner worlds, the world of the feelings and the world of the imagination, the world, too, of Geist or mind-stroke-spirit. When, therefore, with the gradual creation of German as a vehicle for literature and philosophy throughout the 18th century, we get this burgeoning of major talent from the 1770s onwards, we find that long before the advent of Romanticism proper in the late 1790s, the upsurge and renaissance taking place aren't geared to new discoveries in space, as with the Renaissance of the 15th and 16th centuries, the Italian Renaissance, of course, but to discoveries inward, realms of thought and emotion. This appears clearly if we think of the pictorial arts of the Italian Renaissance with their emphasis on the three-dimensionality of sculpture and architecture and compare it with the German, where poetry, idealist philosophy, and above all, music predominate. And notably, where music is concerned, there is a predominance of instrumental rather than vocal music, from Beethoven to Brahms and beyond, which of its very nature means an inward searching of the heights and the depths. To return briefly, however, to the 1770s and 1780s, (coughs) when the first wave of of, uh, this renaissance has broken through, We can isolate its spirit and concerns by pinpointing, I think, two seminal works. Goethe's Die Leiden des Jungen Werthes, The Sorrows of Young Werther of 1774, and Immanuel Kant's Kritik der reinen Vernunft, Kritik of Pure Reason, 1781. The former, an inner Geschichte, or tale of inwardness, still shattering in its emotional impact, is an extended exploration of soul distress and its attendance Ich-Schmerz, I, pain or suffering, and Weltschmerz, pains or sufferings of the world. And the latter, that is the Kant, is a keystone of German thinking, which though criticizing pure a priori reason in its role and function of determining our knowledge, nevertheless and more crucially goes on to maintain that this doesn't at all mean that quote Kant now, our knowledge must conform to objects a la Locke. But on the contrary, the reverse, quote Kant again, objects must conform to knowledge, since upon reflection it must appear that the sensibility and understanding underlying and guiding our perceptions, what Kant terms transcendentala apperception, I'll come to that later, transcendental a perception which refers to uh, uh, um, self-consciousness as opposed to perception outside, but self-consciousness of a special kind, of a transcendental kind, are structured and unified so as to be able to make sense of the external world at all. In short, both Goethe's Werther and Kant's first critique assume the mind's priority, or rather that of Geist, over matter. And this holds true for Faust, the poems of Hölderlin and Novalis say, the expositions of the Naturphilosophen, Fichte and Schelling, right through Schopenhauer to Jung. In the light of all this, therefore, it isn't at all surprising that the Italian Renaissance's ideal of the Uomo Universale, 
It becomes the all-round development of the inner man. As a distinguished theologian and philosopher Ernst Troilsch uh, put it towards the end of the 19th century, looking back, a full and free development of the mind and heart for its own sake. Now, the overall thrust inwards I've been talking about doesn't in the least mean that the outer world disappears. Given the time period we are dealing with, there was an intense, almost overpowering interest taken in the surrounding world of nature and its functions, as the term Naturphilosophie itself implies. And Goethe's own lifelong researches into plant morphology, mineralogy, and theory of colour and light. The point to stress is that though we are on this side of the Cartesian split, in the German tradition, the boundaries between inner and outer are never fixed, but are kept especially fluid. To begin at the terminological level, there is no traditional uh, or standard German word for mind in any cerebral sense. The word Geist, which is usually translated into English as mind or spirit, includes both and other qualities as well. Der Heilige Geist is the Holy Ghost, and the word is likewise used for any sprite or spirit, uh, um, and the, uh, so that connections are still made between the spiritual inside and the spiritual outside. More than this, Geist is seen functioning in history as in the term Geistesgeschichte, um, <coughs> uh, um, the history of the spirit or the mind, which originally a Hegelian idea rapidly developed into a scholarly discipline in its own right. And here perhaps it's worthwhile referring to both history and Geschichte. History, as the word patently indicates, means history in German. But history is story an aggregate and study of past events. Whereas Geschichte, as in Geistesgeschichte or Kulturgeschichte, cultural history, Kunstgeschichte, art history, a German invention, by the way, and Geschichtsphilosophie, philosophy of history, all recognized academic disciplines, implies more history as development, as process, with a definite sense of dynamic change involved. Terminologically, of course, English doesn't make this distinction. But the difference is very German, and as we will see, is related in outlook to the idea of self-development contained in the term Bildung. I'll be coming to this later on. Meaning formation and shaping, but also significantly education. Now, noticeable about the above forms of Geschichte is not simply the proliferation of specialisms, but the fluidity and openness of the base concept and its area, indicating a much more holistic approach to fields of study and something originally enshrined in Germany's university and gymnasium, as the high school system of education. Take again the traditional opposition here on this side of the channel between arts and sciences. In German, the stem word Wissenschaft or knowledge, really, is used of both. Naturwissenschaft, knowledge of nature, is the word for science. Kunstwissenschaft and Literaturwissenschaft refer to art and aesthetics and the study of literature. But both have the, have the same stem. There's no, no um, terminological uh, um, uh, um, cleavage between them. In this way, a common base is retained for usually antagonistic fields of knowledge. 
And finally, there is the further extension into Theaterwissenschaft, uh, which is knowledge of the theatre, which includes holistically every aspect of theatre and drama from stage and design uh, um, history through acting uh, methods to the interpretation of playtext, thus giving this discipline much-needed kudos and seriousness of purpose, qualities which Edward Gordon Craig found operating to his great delight when he entered the famous Munich Kammerspieler in Munich, uh, um, the famous Munich Kammerspieler, of course, in Munich, uh, for the first time, and found there what he was looking for, his phrase, the art of the theatre. And this was the title he then gave to his equally famous book of 1911. And while with the theatre, we shouldn't forget that director's theatre, as we now know it today, and the concept of théâtre total in French, as practiced by Jean-Louis Barrault and Peter Brook, ultimately derives from work done by the Duke of Saxe Meiningen's players from 1874 onwards. They form the first serious attempt to introduce ensemble playing shaped by the, uh, um, shaped by the Duke as director with remarkable innovations in lighting, scenery, costume and crowd scenes. Then, of course, just prior to this, we have Wagner's music dramas, as he called them, based on his theory of the Gesamtkunstwerk, the total work of art. A holistic approach to art, if ever there was one, with music, text, and stage design fused into a seamless web of all the arts to create a resonating tapestry of unforeseen psychological nuance and symbolic mythic depths. Now, Germany has traditionally been known as Das Land der Dichter und Denker, the land of poets and thinkers, as the popular saying has it. It's very popular. This is a standard uh, uh, phrase in German. And this clearly means that composing poetry and thinking go together. The two faculties aren't viewed as split off from each other. Parenthetically, I should put in that the term Dichter is equally applicable to a dramatist like Schiller, or a writer of high prose like Kafka. And it isn't automatically given to a poet, for whom there remain other words, such as poet or lyrica. Um, Dichter implies a pronounced status and quality, such as the Celtic use of the word bard, and stands in opposition to schriftsteller, which means simply writer. Thinking and writing, then, at a certain level, are assumed to go hand in hand. Goethe, Hölderlin, and Rilke say are all serious thinkers in verse, while Schopenhauer and Nietzsche would be considered poets of philosophy, and certainly both of them in different ways are regarded as supreme stylists and masters of German prose. Further, during the initial great period of our tradition, say 1780 to 1830, the poets of the age were in constant dialogue with the philosophers, often personally, since the period produced a glut of major talents in both fields. So we get Schiller absorbing and meditating on Kant, Hölderlin conversing with Hegel, they were both students together at the Tübinger Stift, that intellectual powerhouse of the day, and later, for example, Wagner being completely hooked on Schopenhauer prior to composing Tristan und Isolde. Now, inside Germany, no one perhaps has believed in and meditated on the fundamental unity of Denken und Dichten than Heidegger, with his emphasis on the latter activity as something that defines, or in his phrase, speaks being. Since the Dichter is for him someone who knows, both ethically and aesthetically. 
George Steiner, in his essay, No Passion Spent, comments centrally on this topic. Quote Steiner now, it is through his openness, his vulnerability to the pressures of being, that the mystery, that the hidden pulse of primordial coming into being in the inorganic and organic processes of our world are made perceptible. It is by the dichter that the root, quali- that the root question of all thought Why should there be, why should there not be nothing, is asked most insistently. And it is correspondingly in supreme art and literature, in Van Gogh's painting of a pair of torn labourer's shoes, in Hölderlin's odes, that what we can experience, what we can undergo in respect of an answer to this question, is most palpable. More than any other man, the dichter is for Heidegger, the quote Heidegger now, the shepherd of being. It is in the custody of dichter that man comes nearest to being what he is, what he could be, if he is to be man. End of George Steiner quote. Now, the poet has custodian of being. This is a formulation I find enormously resonant with purpose and meaning, as well as being richly inclusive. By contrast, I made to think of John Stuart Mill, brought up from the age of three on a diet of utilitarianism under which his mind, construed as, as he puts it, a machine for thinking, eventually broke down. He was helped to recover by reading Wordsworth, who gave him what he had lacked, namely, quote um, John Stuart Mill himself, the very culture of the feelings. That Mill's case was just one significant feature of a, mar- of a much larger terrain emerges indirectly in Coleridge's fine statement that provides the all-important bridge across the ravine. Quote Coleridge, My opinion is this, that deep thinking is attainable only by a man of deep feeling, and that all truth is a species of revelation. Now this, I would suggest, would have been axiomatic inside the German tradition, and our own ongoing Um, tendency to oppose feeling against thought, poetry against rational inquiry, let alone the utilitarian concept of the mind as a machine for thinking, would be totally strange to it. As part of the opposite picture, let me quote Nietzsche. I have at all times thought with my whole body and my whole life. I do not know what purely intellectual problems are. And Rilke's perceptive comment on Rodin's, uh, you know, the French sculptor, Rodin's sculpture of the thinker. He called it Denken mit dem ganzen Körper, thinking with the entire body. And then even today, or recently, a very distinguished German poet who died in, in uh, 1979, Ernst Meister from Hagen, uh, Westphalia, Das bei mir dichten identisches mit Denken, that with me, composing poetry is identical with thinking. Two faculties moving together. Now, at this juncture, I would like to relate what is, I think, an unusual but quite significant scientific anecdote uh, concerning the chemist August von Kekulé, who discovered the structure of the element carbon in 1865. At the time, he was professor of chemistry at the University of Ghent, Belgium, but returned to the University of Bonn later that year as a result of what happened. He had been working on the problem of the structure of carbon for some time, 
certainly from 1858 when he discovered that it was uh, um, tetravalent, that is to it, it has a valency of, of four, that is the valence or valency is a unit of, of, of combining power in um, atoms. And that is atoms linked together to form long chains, but no farther. And he was pretty exhausted by this time. Then one evening, returning from a long day at the laboratory, he dozed off in front of the fire in his study, perhaps more in a state of reverie between waking and sleeping than anything else, the state, among others, that Yeats is always referring to in his prose writings. Anyway, as Kekula dozed, he watched the flames of his fire curling upwards at the back of the chimney and somehow registered that they were often curling back on themselves like small snakes, biting or devouring their tails. With a jolt, he immediately realized that this was the six-carbon um, benzene ring, as it became known, and that has happened the known facts of organic chemistry up to that time would fall into place. So it, it was undoubtedly a major scientific discovery. Now, being highly informed and intelligent in other areas apart from chemistry, Kekulé also realized that he had had a vision of the ancient symbol of the Ouroboros, or tail-biting serpent, which appropriately and significantly represented time and the continuity of life the eternal circle of disintegration and reintegration in nature and the cosmos. This symbol, like the element carbon itself, is found worldwide. Among African tribes and the Greeks, where it is central to Orphic symbolism, as the snake curled around the cosmic egg. It sometimes has the Greek cap caption, hen pan, the one, the all, imprinted on it, and with half the snake's body being dark, the other half light, so that it is basically a version of the Chinese yin-yang symbol, denoting the successive counterbalancing of, op of opposing principles. Not only was the Ouroboros a well-known Gnostic symbol, but was central to alchemy, chemistry's forerunner, where it connoted the latent power of nature in the unformed materia, the opus circulare of chemical substance, in the hermetic vessel. The distinguished Italian chemist and novelist Primo Levi, who died recently, describes carbon in his The Periodic Table as the key element of living substance. And we now know that it forms more compounds than all the other, than all the other elements combined. What all this would seem to suggest, and the, and the idea I find is really exciting, is an intimate cross-connection at the heart of substance, life, and nature between a fundamental element and compound essential to life and an ancient imaginative symbol. This is something very sympathetic to German ways of thinking. That's the point I want to stress, to the kind of Weltanschauung they traditionally support. Finally, to return to the last bit of the Kekule anecdote, as I said, he returned later in 1865 to the University of Bonn and thereafter apparently would always recommend to his scientific colleagues, lernen Sie nur träumen, meine Herrschaften, lernen Sie nur träumen. Learn how to, only learn how to dream, gentlemen. Only learn how to dream. Here science crosses hands with the land of dreams and the imagination. 
And it is perhaps not insignificant that in Thomas Mann's Der Zauberberg, we get, as it were, the reverse process of this. Starting, obviously, from the novelistic, and we, will, and, and we see uh, uh, from the novelistic end, we see how Mann's hero, Hans Kastorp, is totally reoriented um, in terms of Bildung, or learning experience, often of a disturbing, undermining, yet transformative kind, in which romanticism, death, illness, and pervasive eroticism join forces with medical science. In the process, too, we can see how even Wagner is made to cross hands with, with medicine and psychoanalysis, since, after all, Hans Kastorp's seven-year stay on the Magic Mountain at the Berghof Sanatorium, with all its tubercular patients, is based on Tarnhäuser's enthralled stay on the Venusberg. Music, drama, legend, and eros are fused, therefore, in an endlessly fascinating way, with various aspects of the scientific field. Let us now return by way of Kekulé's creative use of dream and imagination to Kant's Critique der Reinen Vernunft, which, though totally anti-Locke in its valuation of mind and perception, indeed he accuses him of eine gewisse Physiologie des Verstandes, a certain physiology of the understanding, pointing basically to an early form of behaviorism. Nevertheless, Kant takes or this work takes stock of, subsumes, and yet transcends both empiricist and pure rationalist positions. Indeed, we cannot but remember Kant's famous statement that in order to achieve his so-called Copernican revolution in the field of epistemology, he had to be roused, as he put it, from his dogmatic slumbers by Hume's empirical skepticism. And, and of course, the term critique is pure enlightenment a philosophy and cultural movement which Kant in 1784 defined as man's emergence from his self-imposed tutelage, offering as its motto the Latin sapere audi, dare to know, a Faustian position certainly. However, we should take note of the fact that if critique is an enlightenment term, or aufklärung to use the German, then it is itself employed critically against a purely enlightenment faculty namely that of the all-important Reiner Vernunft, pure reason. And crucially, Kant's critique of pure reason and the establishing of its limits, together with his powerful critique and setting up of similar limits to the empirical realm and its protagonist Bacon, Locke, Hume, etc., enable him to become aware of very different faculties of mind grouped under the heading of the term we've already referred to, die transcendentale apperception which Kant sees as constituting uh, the Einheit des Bewusstseins, the unity of consciousness, and which itself is based on the Einbildungskraft, the German word for the imagination, literally the power of the imagination. To quote Kant himself on this, I'll just give the English here translation, thus the transcendental unity of our perception is based upon the pure synthesis of the imagination as an a priori condition for any possible composition of manifold entities in an act of perception. What, of course, Kant is stressing here is the absolutely fundamental role of the faculty of imagination in any account of mind and perception and that this faculty as a, power of, uh, as a power of synthesizing is presupposed by any act of perception. One is immediately reminded of that well-known statement of Coleridge's, called Coleridge, that synthetic and magical power to which I would exclusively appropriate the, the name of imagination. 
And we remember that Coleridge in 1798 went for a year to the University of Göttingen with the express aim of studying German metaphysics and especially Kant, whom he asked the poet Klopstock about at Hamburg on his way there. Indeed, bearing in mind (coughs) the state of Coleridge's German at that time, I I have wondered whether his particular Greek coinage for imaginative activity, namely isemplastic, to shape into one, doesn't derive from the verb einbilden in German, which strictly speaking, however, connotes picturing inside or into the mind, as with the closely related verb einprägen, which means imprinting into. And in medieval German mysticism, as in Meister Eckhart, the Middle High German form of Einbildung, Inbildunge, connotes in die Seele hineinprägen, imprinting into the soul. Einbildungskraft or Fantasie are then in the 17th century the German terms used for vis imaginationis, the force of imagination, both of which come into the more modern usage, as with Kant, during the, uh, the 18th century. But since Einbilden is a unifying and synthetic activity, Coleridge could well be correct in assuming that it likewise connotes to shape into one, Bilden in Eins. Anyway, with Kant, as with the later major figures such as Schiller, who was greatly indebted uh, to him, Fichte and Schelling, the imagination is revalued, this is important, is revalued and upgraded being seen as basic not only to all aesthetic and creative activity, but also primary to ordinary perception. That is a great discovery philosophically during this period of German philosophical idealism. Now Kant's other seminal work where we are concerned is the Kritik der Urteilskraft of 1790, usually translated as the Critique of Judgment, but strictly speaking, as with imagination, the power of judgment. And it is here that he really first acknowledges the imagination as a separate and special faculty of the mind which is constitutive of acts of perception, not simply associative in function, as with the empiricist tradition of Locke, Hume, and Hartley. Coleridge came to see and understand this after his studies at Göttingen, I think, significantly ditching Hartley's what he called law of association, as he puts it in in Biographia Literaria, in favor of Kant's synthetic and constitutive account of the nature of perception, and interestingly ascribing the associative power to either memory or fancy. I think Wordsworth never really grasped this this uh, major difference. Um, And Coleridge argues back against him in this way later in that book. Empiricism, Coleridge came to see, as only being capable of dealing with mental aggregates and associations. Imaginative synthesis, according to Kant, works by fusing, quote, the intuition of the senses, say, of a book or a tree, with the concept of them contributed by the verstand or understanding. This, then, constitutes the total experience where, however, the imagination is bounded by the concepts and beliefs of the understanding brought to bear on the initial situation of the perception, since how one views the world depends on one's disposition to form determinate beliefs about it. In aesthetic experience, on the other hand, and artistic creativity, the imagination is freed from concepts and engages in a kind of free play that enables one to bring fresh ideas and concepts to bear on an experience that is in itself free of them. 
And it is from here that Schiller develops his ideas on aesthetics in Über die ästhetische Erziehung des Menschen on the aesthetic education of man of 1795, where the term Erziehung, education, which we must briefly return to when discussing Bildung, which can also mean education, refers to a formal pedagogic program, like history as opposed to Geschichte in the two terms I used with regard to history. Schiller's long essay is in the form of letters, at the start of which he, he immediately admits, indeed I will not hide from you, that it is to a large extent Kantian principles which underlie the following assertions. Nevertheless, in trying to establish his own position and clearly deriving a major insight from his predecessors maintaining that in aesthetic contemplation or experience we are freed from concepts and engage in a kind of free play, um, moreover, that this experience um, is characterized by its disinterestedness, a cardinal Kantian belief, Schiller takes issue with, Kant, with Kantian oppositions such as Pflicht and Neigung, duty and inclination, or das Geistige, the spiritual, and das Sinnliche, the sensuous, and tries to effect a reconciliation between the pairs in a Spieltrieb, a play instinct. Der Mensch ist nur da ganz Mensch, wo er spielt. Man is only then really human when at play. Um, and, then he, and then he says, there is no other way to make the sensuous man rational than to make him beforehand aesthetic. One notices in this second quote a very German desire to bridge opposites. And indeed, in a well-known half-page footnote to the 20th letter, Schiller defines man's um, aesthetic constitution as an amalgam of sensuous, logical, and moral predispositions. And the drive towards synthesis is again noticeable. This is very German, to, 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 to think towards synthetic conclusions, to synthetic points of view. Um, and it is the Germans who really create the first modern philosophy of aesthetics, coining the term as we now use it from the Greek. This was the work of Alexander Baumgarten in his Aesthetic of 1750-58, and Kant builds on from there. In the latter's ascription of the principle of disinterestedness to the aesthetic judgment, it is important to realize that any assumption of agreement here is beyond empirical needs and desires or wants. The essence of the beautiful is seen as residing in form. And this means that neither appetite nor desire have a place here and are therefore unable to militate against our better selves. Without the disinterested contemplation involved in aesthetic judgment, Kant maintains, man is, in, is unable to stand back, gaze at nature, and grasp his own being vis-à-vis -vis the external world together with his own position in it. Aesthetic experience and judgment are necessary for this, hence integral to our nature as moral beings, and beauty, says Kant, is an experience, not a concept. Now it's significant that to the best of my knowledge there is no real philosophy of aesthetics this side of the channel, apart perhaps from that of R.G. Collinwood, and he was appropriately an Oxford Hegelian, somewhat out of touch with his time and his university. Hegel, it was, who defined art as the sensuous embodiment of the idea, an, an idealistic, platonic conception, completely characteristic of the rediscoverer of Proclus. 
And it is obvious that German aesthetics derives from German philosophical idealism with its continuing emphasis on the aesthetic idea embodied in phenomena and works of art and linked to a philosophy of mind. Schopenhauer's concept of music as pure aesthetic idea, form and content being totally inseparable, stems from all this. And with this in mind, I believe we can see close, affiliation, close affinities between German aesthetics, philosophical idealism, um, and instrumental or absolute music, as it is sometimes called. For the inner Renaissance is three-pronged. Aesthetic, philosophical, literary, and at the same time musical, highly musical. Indeed, Thomas Mann, in a famous speech held just at the close of World War II, entitled Deutschland und die Deutschen, had this to say about Germany and its music. I'll just give you the English for this. If Faust ought to be the representative of German soul, then he would have to be a musician. For abstract and mystical, that is to say musical, is the German relationship to life. Man, of course, is in the last stages of his own Dr. Faustus novel at this time, a time of total national and moral collapse. It was to appear in 1947 with, indeed, its uh, daimonic hero, the fictitious modern composer Adrian Leverkuhn. The Faustian analogy with music is fascinating, as we shall see in a moment, but of immediate interest to us is the definition of musicality as abstract und mystisch. Das heißt musikalisch. It's interesting, man should, should, should break down, should think that, it, that, that musical means being mystical and, abst and abstract, uh, the abstract qualities of, the, of pure musical composition and thinking. Uh, with roots going back, I think, to Bach, Schütz, and perhaps even the Middle Ages of Meister Eckert. The abstract, the mystical, and even the Faustian are brought together vis-à-vis -vis a composer central to this whole theme, Beethoven. In his rich and insightful book, Beethoven and the Voice of God, Wilfred Mellers has this to say about the composer's personality and little later on his cultural musical connections with idealist philosophy. First on the personality. Uh, and he's referring now to the difficulty that contemporaries had with recording their impressions of Beethoven. Apparently, if you look... Uh, at, at what contemporaries who knew Beethoven say about him when they met the man, they are in some sense always conflicting and contradictory. The insightful book, Beethoven and the Voice of God, Wilfred Mellers has this to say about the composer's personality and little later on his cultural musical connections with idealist philosophy. First on the personality. Uh, and he's referring now to the difficulty that contemporaries had with recording their impressions of Beethoven. Apparently, if you look uh, at, at what contemporaries who knew Beethoven say about him when they met the man, they are in some sense always conflicting and contradictory. There's no kind of, uh, of unified impression. And, and Mellers thinks that this is, this is um, interesting. Uh, quote Mellers, The ambiguity of the outward physiognomy reflected the inner man. Um, Beethoven's two selves... Real and ideal, dark and light, inspirational and aspirational, were necessary the one to the other. To have destroyed one would have destroyed the whole. I mean, Beethoven was a very difficult person, as, as we all know. To discover the whole through his music was Beethoven's life task. 
And it may be that even his deafness, which we normally think of as an affliction peculiarly terrible for a musician, was a condition of his supreme achievement. At once a physical fact and a spiritual allegory, it shut him off from external reality and helped him to concentrate on his internal reality of sound. I find that remark on Beethoven's deafness absolutely convincing. And in a somewhat different way, the equally thought-provoking um, idea about, the, um, about Beethoven's two selves, which is a quote, uh, I should have said this, perhaps it, um, Mellis puts it in, 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 um, um, in uh, quotation marks. It's a quote from a famous passage in one of the opening scenes of Goethe's Faust. Famous line, Zwei Seelen wohnen ach in meiner Brust. Two souls, alas, are living in my breast. And indeed, several people, having known Beethoven and his music, must have sensed something analogous to the Faustian striving and quest, as well as the Faustian internal conflict. But of course, uh, Beethoven didn't sell his soul like Faust. And his quest, Wilfred Mellers interestingly, I think, thinks, was for what he calls the hidden song at the center of all being, which he found verbalized in a poem by Friedrich Schlegel, some of whose works he apparently had in his library. In English, it isn't a very good poem, but in English uh, the relevant lines are, through all the tones, their sounds throughout the colorful earth, a gentle tone sustained for him who secretly hears. This gentle tone, Mellers thinks, Beethoven achieved towards the end of his life in the exquisite Bagatelle's Opus 126, and more massively in the second final movement of his last piano sonata, Opus 111, appropriately titled Arietta, or Little Song. Uh, that's a remarkably interesting idea, and, and, and uh, I find it um, um, convincing. But now to return to what Mellis has to say about the cultural musical connections with idealist philosophy. This follows straight on. Beethoven's life, like Hegel's conception of reality, is a becoming that advances only through negation and contradiction. His life was a flux, a manifestation of Hegel's unruhe, restlessness. But its goal was rest. At a point where man, having become more aware of the dialectical process within him, has become truly free. The analogy extends to Beethoven's art. There is an obvious parallel between the dialectical triad of thesis, antithesis, and synthesis, which Hegel derived from Fichte, and the exposition, development, and recapitulation of the sonata principle. Uh, and there is a still closer parallel be uh, between Hegel's later triad of opposition, synthesis, and transcendence, and the precise form uh, which the evolution of sonata uh, assumed through Beethoven's life. Because, uh, if you remember, Be Beethoven transformed um, the whole idea and conception of the sonata from his early works right away towards his, uh, uh, to his uh, last works. It is hardly extravagant to call Beethoven the first modern composer in that he seeks through the dialectical process of his music the form of truth. And in the later Beethoven, you get the beginnings of modern music. Now, I shall be dealing with the dialectical process in my next talk when we go on to discuss Goethe and Jung, in both of whose sets of thinking it will be found to play a central role, as indeed it does with most German thinkers. Uh, now I want to uh, go back to the um, concept of Bildung, 
which is um, often translated, as I've said, as education, but which more accurately refers to formation or shaping. And therefore, education only insofar as it is a forming or shaping process. One notices the careful emphasis on development for its own sake, not on ends and means. So it is fiercely anti-utilitarian, resulting in the so-called ideal of humanität, put forward at Weimar by Herder, Wieland, Goethe and Schiller, and which was to become authoritative for the whole of the 19th century, though with variations and complexities. Humanität, incidentally, has nothing at all to do with what we here might associate with the humanist society. It was basically the inner Renaissance's version of Italian Renaissance humanism, which in its Florentine school of Ficino, Botticelli and Pico della Mirandola was, of course, strongly imbued with the spirit of Plato and Neoplatonism. It had its roots in the Weimar classicism, nourished by the above-mentioned writers, as a result of forging new links with Greek culture, mainly via the writings of Winkelmann on sculpture and the impact of Goethe's Italian journey of 1786-88. to Many other reinforcing currents were also clearly at work, but these two events gave particular impetus to a new aesthetic ideal manifested in Greek sculpture and formulated memorably by Winkelmann as eine edle Einfalt und eine stille Größe, a noble simplicity and a quiet greatness. But straight after this, he also adds this. I'll just give the, uh, the English. Just as the depth of the ocean remains at all times peaceful, however the surface rages, even so does the expression in the sculptures of the Greeks with all their passions show a soul both great and grave. Now it was this new classical ideal which was seen to underpin the concept of humanität and the equally new Bildungsideal, the ideal of, of, of formation, cultural ideal. The former was supposed, that the former was imposed to, uh, um, uh, to embody. That is to say, humanitate in this uh, uh, Weimar sense embodies the cultural ideal. Um, harmonious individuality in, in which intellect and feeling are equally balanced, vehement passions always firmly anchored to refer back to Winkelmann's image of the sea, or in Schiller's terms, to reconcile the instincts and senses with reason's law. It's kind of classical balancing act, as it were. Um, clearly, we get here an attempt to fuse opposites in the interest of an ideal. Indeed, what Weimar classicism, or rather neoclassicism, represents is a part of the same European movement that we now designate here the Greek revival, and of which figures like Blake... Uh, um, Fuseli, Thomas Taylor, Keats and Shelley were major participants. And Fuseli, of course, forms a bridge between these two wings, not least through his translation of Winkelmann's thoughts on Greek works of painting and sculpture, 1765. On the continent, however, in Germany, this whole movement was essentially against the art and taste of the French court, um, with its uh, fête galante and fête champêtre, in short, anti-rococo, with its shell-shaped ornaments and boudoirs. Indeed, there is high idealism, a platonic conception of form, and especially line, austere and noble. Think of Blake's and Flaxman's outlines, or Schiller's comments on the paintings in the Dresden Gallery that he went to see. All very well, says Schiller, if only the cartoons were not filled with color. I cannot get rid of the idea that those colors do not tell me the truth. The pure outline would give me much more uh, would give me a much more faithful image. 
Now, from all this complex of things, the concept of Bildung uh, as process and ideal derived. Hermann Weigen, the Goethe scholar, points to its holistic character like this. Bildung, he says, begins along one specific line, to be sure, but it cannot, uh, 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 but it cannot end there. One-sided Bildung is no Bildung. There must be a specific point of departure, but the movement must also pursue a variety of directions. And Goethe himself, in a letter of the 8th of July, 1818, says, it is a matter of indifference in what circle we begin our work of Bildung. It is all the same from which point we orient its progress, provided there is a circle and there is a point of departure. Both quotes here impress upon us that Bildung cannot be narrow or partial, but has to be a rounded affair in which the total personality is touched upon. And in the following three lines from Goethe's play Torquato Tasso, 1790, itself an embodiment of uh, uh, humanitate, the, the humanitate ideal, a wide learning experience is advocated. An edle Mensch kann einem engen Kreise nicht seine Bildung danken. Vaterland und Welt muss auf ihn wirken. A noble person cannot owe his culture to a narrow social circle. His native country and the world at large must make their effect upon him. And Bildung is a learning experience in the widest possible sense. We find embodied in the first great so-called Bildungsroman or novel of formation, namely Goethe's uh, uh, Wilhelm Meister's Lehrjahre, his, uh, his apprenticeship, 1795-96, where apprenticeship to life is meant. And here we see this, the basic pattern of this very German genre fully developed, where the novelist's specific subject is the growth and development of his hero's mind and character um, as he passes from childhood through a variety of experiences and almost always a spiritual crisis into maturity and an awareness of his identity and role in life. Via the Swiss uh, Gottfried Keller's Gruner Heinrich, 1854-55, a realistic version of the genre with Feuerbachian outlook, however, to Thomas Mann's ironic version in Det Zauberberg and Günther Grasse's parodic Die Blechtrommel, or The Tin Drum, of 1959, the form goes through all of German literature. It's a typical German form, Bildungsroman. Um, And we have now imported the term into English to deal with parallel novels dealing with a central character's growth, ranging from Jane Eyre to Joyce's Portrait of the Child, somewhat loosely, I feel. But there is no available English term for this kind of novel. It's sometimes called the novel of education, but education in English doesn't really mean what I've tried to tell you Bildung means in German. It means forming, molding the whole personality in relation to experience, not simply in anything that we understand by, uh, by the term education as such. Um, in any case, Joyce's portrait would be known in German as a Künstlerroman or artist novel. And to point all this out is, I think, important, since it alludes to a deep-seated tendency in German thinking to categorize and pin down whereas we tend to be empirically freewheeling. To describe the former tendency as it's often uh, described as pedantic, Germans are, are thought to be pedantic, I think a bias, is too easily dismissive, especially when we recall the importation of many such intellectual and cultural terms during the course of the 19th century into English, mainly by Coleridge and his followers. Just to remind ourselves, there is the term romantic, 
as applied to poetry and art, not merely scenery. It is only used for scenery uh, and atmosphere in England. The great English Romantic poets, for instance, did not think of themselves as such. This was introduced by Coleridge from Friedrich Schlegel, who first applied the term, as I mentioned earlier in my talk, to the contemporary German verse of his day. Again, it was Coleridge who brought in the philosophical use of subject and object in a Kantian way, without which he himself would not have been able to make such a brilliant insight and formulation as in this. It, that is the imagination, dissolves, diffuses, dissipates in order to recreate. Or where this process is rendered impossible, yet still at all events, it struggles to idealize and to unify. It is essentially vital, even as all objects, as objects, are essentially fixed and dead. A crucial feature here is the italicizing of as in as objects, since this possesses the conceptually distinguishing effect that separates the objects as objects from those same objects in any other philosophical or, f or um, phenomenal sense. Since we're dealing with the German tradition, it is one of my intentions to try to get right, as far as, far as I can, underneath it, inside it, and its capacity for conceptualization for thinking, as it were, abstractly, is deeply characteristic. I myself have now felt for some time that the empirical tradition, as such, militates against this. Uh, aesthetics um, via Baumgarten and Kant we've already mentioned, but further conceptualizations that we use in English range from Hegel's and Marx's Enfremdung, alienation, to Jung's introvert and extrovert, even, I believe, to the phrase turn of the century, from Jahrhundertwende, used in cultural critique and art history. Uh, that seems to me to be characteristic. I know my time is virtually up, but... Uh, and I'll skip one or two things that I was going to say and come to the last main section, if I may, of what I can get done in the time. Now, the deep-rooted and long-standing German awareness of the mind's synthetic powers, which Coleridge, you will remember, seized upon, resurfaces again in the field of psychology in 1910, when it becomes necessary to offset and rebut the growing tide of, association, of associationist psychology, Association Psychologie, which was flowing in alongside experimental science and partaking of its enormous prestige. Its atomistic account of perception was opposed by the new school of Gestalt psychology, founded by three psychologists from different universities uh, at a meeting in Frankfurt, Wolfgang Köhler, Max Wertheimer, and Kurt Kofke, Gestalt is the normal German word for figure, form, or shape. And in the psychology of perception, as formulated by this school, stands for the configurations, patterns, or organized wholes qualitatively different from those same configurations, patterns, or wholes viewed atomistically as simply consisting of collections of component parts. Basically, as a model of perception, the difference is this between a soap bubble and a pile of coins. The gestalt that we see um, is a whole greater than and radically distinctive from a random collection of phenomena, from which, as with a pile of coins, we can take away a number and a pile still remains. 
Whereas with the soap bubble, any tampering or attempt to, to subtract destroys, destroys the entire structure or gestalt. It is a synthesis and not an aggregate, for the whole is perceived to be more than the sum of its parts. Of the above trio, Max Wertheimer seems to have been the leading spirit, discovering what he later called the phi phenomenon, namely that which creates apparent movement for the beholder between still images or frames when flashed in rapid succession, as in a film. Wertheimer found that it is we who introduce the movement, not the image. In other more complicated ways involving previous states of learning, experience, and subjectivity, the specific gestalt created is modified or rather conjured up by an imaginative process in which the foregrounded gestalt is also modified by the background out of which it arises. Again, for the beholder between still images or frames when flashed in rapid succession, as in a film, Wertheimer found that it is we who introduce the movement, not the image. In other more complicated ways involving previous states of learning, experience and subjectivity, the specific gestalt created is modified or rather conjured up by an imaginative process in which the foregrounded gestalt is also modified by the background out of which it arises. Again, musical melodies were seen as perfect examples of Gestalten in the artistic field, since their essential nature depends not on individual or separate notes, but on the entire sequence. I mean, as soon as you... A melody only exists in terms of the whole. It, once you take a note away, you destroy the melody, as you destroy the soap bubble. And this is essentially an aesthetic, imaginative Gestalt. Um, the relevance of Gestalt theory to imagination and the arts is clear, and in Rudolf Arnheim's Art and Visual Perception, 1954, we see its impact in the field of visual aesthetics. The Gestalt school was actually anticipated by an Austrian philosopher, Christian uh, von Ehrenfels, who revived and reintroduced the term Gestalt from Goethe in his 1890 essay, Über Gestaltqualitäten, on the qualities of Gestalt. These qualities being not the single specific attributes making up the gestalt, but that overall, if highly complex quality, radiated by the total gestalt. Um, in this, Ehrenfels is undoubtedly thinking of the role and significance of the Goethean gestalt as deployed by the poet in his scientific writings, uh, plant morphology, and so on. Um, Indeed, uh, um, one might maintain that, morph that morphology uh, regarding Goethe represents the ideal poetic activity in the field of botany and in biology. Uh, what fascinated him was that life or nature as a unification of matter and form can only exist as long as it manifests its gestalt, which although incessantly changing, is at the same time uh, constant in its essentials. It is the perennial theme of being and becoming, whose morphological principle, um, morphology, of course, is the study of, of, of forms and their evolution and, and, and differences, also comparatively, he so dearly wished to penetrate and uncover. He thought of it as a single formative principle and that a certain universal image underlies all these individual shapes. The latter was called at times an idee, at others an urphenomen, a primal phenomenon, 
and he thought the whole and he sought the whole time for an urpflanze, a primal plant hovering behind all plant forms like a platonic ghostly paradigm of things. However, as in the fierce argument with Schiller over its identity, I can't go into this at the moment, Goethe the visualizer thought of it as basically a schematically simplified form which, like Ariadne's thread, would enable us to, quote Goethe now, grope our way through the labyrinth of living shapes, voran wir uns durch das Labyrinth der lebendigen Gestalten durchhelfen. Now, my time is... I've overshot my time by five minutes, and I just want to bring this section to an end. This is as much as I can get in. Um, leading on from this argument, and still within the area of Gestalt and Urphenemim, Karl Vieter, the Goethe scholar, in his section on morphology in Goethe the Thinker, draws some highly significant consequences that relate up to overall, the overall mode of German thinking or one of its modes, anyway. He, quote, quote Vieta, Goethe's morphological research and Schiller's aesthetic speculation are the beginning of that typological mode of viewing things which later on, and especially in Germany, played so great a role in the investigation of the mental sciences. What he means by mental sciences? Geisteswissenschaften is the current German term for, for, for the study of what we would call the humanities and the history of the arts. The method consists in a procedure whereby the basic features are lifted out so that an ideal schema results, an ideal type, which does not occur in the real world. The purpose of this abstraction, however, is to illuminate more plainly everything individual in the phenomenon and make it more understandable. What Goethe calls type is not completely realized in any single plant or animal. He quotes Goethe now, no organic being corresponds wholly to the idea which underlies it. Behind each one, the higher idea lies concealed. Then, then Vieta, it is true that all are contained in the primal image, all formed according to the type, but each individual being is an independent variant of the integral formative principle. This principle is the eternal essence in the flux of the constant... What Goethe calls type is not completely realized in any single plant or animal. He quotes Goethe now, No organic being corresponds wholly to the idea which underlies it. Behind each one, the higher idea lies concealed. Then, then Vieta, It is true that all are contained in the primal image, all formed according to the type. But each individual being is an independent variant of the integral formative principle. This principle is the eternal essence in the flux of the constantly developing shapes, the permanent element in the assessing becoming of things. The mysterious, this is good now, the mysterious and invisible model in which all life must move. Uh, now, this typological mode of viewing things that Vieta is referring to. Um, bears considerable fruit in the later 19th and early earlier 20th centuries in the work of aestheticians and art historians like Wilhelm Voringer in his famous um, Abstraction and Empathy and Heinrich Wölflin in his major work on aesthetics, Principles of Art History, as it's translated in 1932, together, of course, in psychology with the work of Jung particularly in a volume of Jung's from the collected works entitled Psychological Types, 
which not only contains a fascinating conspectus of typological thought during classical and medieval times and an essay on the type problem in modern philosophy, but also a long section on Schiller's ideas on the type problem, which is an excellent gloss on the reference to Schiller at the beginning of the Vieta passage. What is furthermore interesting about the, about the typological mode is that it presupposes an abstracting, quasi-platonic method that moves to an ideal schema or type from the object or phenomenon contemplated in order to interpret the latter properly. A movement upwards and out, then back down to refocus on the single plant or animal in a kind of platonizing empiricism, if this isn't a contradiction in terms, where the higher ideal is concealed, this is Goethe, but where also Goethe, each individual being is an independent variant of the, in, of the integral formative principle. That seems to me as developed um, by Vieta in his comments on Goethe's morphological thinking and, and Schiller's aesthetic uh, thinking, continuing it right through into uh, um, art history and, and art aesthetics and many other things and psychology, as I said with Jung, seems to, to characterize uh, the German mode of thinking which does not stay at the simply empirical level. This, this is uh, dissatisfactory to it. It, it, it. They get no leverage on life and the answers to life out of this. They have to go beyond and then come back if they want to. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. I'm sorry I... I <laughs> we have 20 minutes, I think, about 20 minutes. Yes. Well, actually, I think we've asked a great deal of you, Jack, piled so much into one lecture. That was perfectly it, right, There's enough there for so much thought. And how much we lose by excluding ourselves from other traditions of Europe. It, it seemed to me this evening, you know, what a wonderful, rich field of, of, of experience we are excluding by this very narrow um, Anglo-American sort of uh, focusing on external factuality. Thanks. Which um, I'm, I'm absolutely overwhelmed, uh, Jack, by how much you know. Well. <laughs> It's very you kind of you, Catherine. something very, very rich, very complete, very coherent, and I'm sure we will all now um, be um, trying to see things in a different way and seeing musicality and the soap bubble and the yes, the yes, 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 the, the melody and the yes. and the, the the holistic approach. It's absolutely so revolutionary revolutionary, this, this new perspective. But I won't take up the time of people who I'm sure are wanting to ask me questions. Yes, please, please uh, ask me anything you want to or make any, any comments you want to. Is, is this tradition of a, a specifically Protestant tra tradition? No, no, no. This, this is, well, <laughs> let me put it like this. Uh, since you bring up the word Protestant, there is a sense in which, though one can't take this too far, a number of the key um, major figures in German philosophy and in poetry um, happen to be Protestant. This, I think, is not insignificant. Uh, give you an example. Kant, Schiller, Goethe, Hegel, 
Hölderlin. They were all Protestants. Um, this may have something to do with um, the power of the Reformation in Germany. Um, but, but no, uh, to answer your question more directly, it applies not only to, to, to Protestants, but to Catholics as well. I mean, I always, I feel in some way, I'll give you an example, I always think in some way, quite, it, it turns out it's quite wrong, that Beethoven was a Protestant, but he wasn't, he was Catholic. So, so that, no, this, this whole thing kind of encapsulates both religions, but I think there is something to the fact that the, the Lutheran tradition, the Protestant, yes, but perhaps I should say this, it's the Protestant tradition that really kind of tends to internalize everything much more. This is one of the positive sides. And, and something I didn't talk about, I didn't have time to put it in, though I, I, I was going to, um, I, I probably will mention it uh, when I come on to Goethe uh, uh, next week, is the contribution uh, by pietism. The, 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 the pietist movement in Germany was extremely strong. And it gives you a kind of, of I mean, you get this in Bach. Bach's music really relates back to Lutheranism and, and the pietistic tradition inside it. It's very much concerned with, uh, uh, with, with, as the term piety in this sense is purely uh, inward. It, it cultivates the, the inner man and woman. And, and therefore, I think that the Protestant tradition coming from, well, I mean, after all, as you know, it was the Germans and the Luther who created the Reformation. And the difference between, I mean, the Reformation here is, 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 is not so powerful in this way because it then becomes what you might call, well, what they call the Elizabethan settlement, which is related to the state religion and so on. We've always had that also probably because of the two religions side by side in Germany. This is one of the reasons you had this terrible, um, this is why Germany was held back for so long in the 17th century, as a result of Germany being split always between Protestant and Catholic communities. You had this um, 30 years war from 1618 to 1638, and it's this that held back Germany, devastated Germany. But um, no, to come back to your main point, uh, it, includes both, uh, it includes both religions, but I would say that the, that the real impetus probably, to some extent, all this whole movement comes from rather more from the uh, Reformation Protestant sides, but the Jews Catholics. Yes? You would say that Catholic is, is an attempt to escape both from pietism and from Wolfianism. He finds both of them. Uh, Tangibly now. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, yes. yes, yes. That's where he breaks through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and similarly, it, it, it's not only the two religions. But also the two ways of, of thinking, the two ways yes, of arguing. Yes. Yes. Um, now, now that you brought this up, what I, I didn't I didn't mention in a way, uh, one could go on and talk about this. Um, I will try and develop this more in my other two talks. Uh, quite ob quite obviously, um, and also since gentleman here has mentioned Protestantism, we don't talk about this. The, the the German idealist tradition from Kant through Friedrich Schelling and poetry as well. They, as it were, they transfer the religious feelings and values from Protestantism or from, Catholic, or from Catholicism into a kind of, of philosophy that has religious values, but is absolutely uh, uh, important for the modern secular world in a way. It, it tends to give, I, I'll try and say more about this, people will come to Rilke as well. It, it, out of this, I think, comes 
Um, the, the German uh, uh, tendency and, and capacity to somehow invest philosophy, thinking, and art with religious values and feelings that uh, traditionally would have simply stayed in the Protestant or Catholic fields. And you can see the development of that in Jung. Oh, absolutely. He absolutely. Them into, into absolutely. And Jung fits in with this because Jung yes. was Protestant. Yes. I, I'll try and say more about this thing when we come to as well. It, it, out of this, I think, comes um, the, the German uh, uh, tendency and, and capacity to somehow invest philosophy, thinking, and art with religious values and feelings that uh, traditionally would have simply stayed in the Protestant or Catholic fields. And you can see the development of that in Jung. Oh, absolutely. He tries absolutely. to them into, into Absolutely. And Jung fits in with this because Jung yes. was Protestant. Yes. He came from a, a, a Lutheran pastor's family. Absolutely. Yeah. That's very true. Uh, um, that you do find beautiful, yeah. 
Well, then you, then you examine your feelings with regard to what you find beautiful. Start with, don't worry about what is confusing you is if someone tells you a thing is beautiful and you don't find it beautiful. Don't worry about that, begin with. Concentrate on what you find beautiful and see what feelings you get from that. Yeah, that's, that's good practical for us. Yeah. Just as a little joke, yes, I, I was told uh, in my high student days that carefully found this, covered the idea of the benzene ring when he was dozing on the Clapham omnibus. <laughs> that they haven't heard. That they haven't heard. That's my version of the story. But you obviously know the story. And what I think is marvellous about the story is that it joins the worlds of science and art together. And that is, I mean, I find that quite unusual. I come from Cambridge, where they're all, well, not all scientists, a lot of scientists and engineers and, and, and uh, technicians and that, and they would never make a, a remark like that. Science is one world, Art is another. What is what was good about the Kekula thing was just that he joined them. And I, I think it's a marvellous anecdote. Yes. There's a parallel anecdote here with Wagner. Yes. And the, the beginning of the writing of um, the music for the ring. Mm -hmm. What Reingold? Yeah. Yes. He wasn't feeling too well and he'd been out for a walk and came back and sort of fell into a sort of doze. And as he dozed, he felt he was falling into water which was swirling around him. That's right. And the water took on the configuration of the chord of E flat. E flat, right. <laughs> That's right. I think he, he experienced that in Italy in the uh, Italian Riviera. He was on Holocaust. There were the Alps, I can't remember. Yes, that's right. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. The other thing I noticed yeah. a long time ago, I read Dr. Faustus on yes. now. Yes. And at the end of the book, yes. um, he gives, if you like, different explanations of Lady Queen's death yes. from the absolute down-to-earth me uh, medical to the totally spiritual abstract and more or less says to the reader, take your choice or take any of them. And it, it struck me there, there were actually a lot of, lot of levels functioning there simultaneously. Not necessarily, but I think basically, as far as I know, um, uh, man bases uh, the life and of course the death of the Yukun uh, on that of Nietzsche. Oh, does he? Yes, oh yes on that of Nietzsche, and Nietzsche apparently, as far as we know, when he was a student, picked up syphilis. Uh -huh. And when he had this, this, this complete collapse, just at the sending of this uh, famous postcard, either to his sister or somebody else, signed the Crucified, the uh Kreuzichter. -huh. And then he collapses into total, terrible tragedy, if you remind like that, yeah, he collapses into total uh, darkness. Yeah. And for the last, I don't know, eight or nine years of his life, he's nursed by his sister. And this is what happens, if you remember, to Leverkusen when he, when he knows it's coming, because yes. his mate is kind of packed with deadly, and he invites all his friends to, uh, to his rooms out uh, um, in Bavaria, out the, outside uh, Munich, and then he collapses at the piano, if you remember. Yes. Well, that is actually the third degree of syphilis, uh -huh. at least at the medical level. Yes. But of course, you're right in saying that into this medical plane, mm -hmm. Thomas Mann brings all kinds of, of metaphysical, yes and spiritual levels. And this is why he's so fascinating. Yes. Of course, he helps at Schoenberg. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. He, yes, that's right. He, he, uh, um, I, I think he, the only, he, he, in fact, he can't, he, he, I think as far as I remember, in the, there's an epigraph at the beginning of the novel where he says that he's indebted to uh, Schoenberg's Harmonielehrer. Mm -hmm. That means that Schoenberg is being associated <laughs> with Leverkusen and Schoenberg didn't like this at all. Not in the least. 
How how does Hoffman fit into this? Oh, E.J. Hoffman. Hmm. Well, yes, uh, he's a complicated figure. We only unfortunately know him under, under Hoffman's tale. His name is Hoffman, yeah. largely through the, uh, through the light opera. Uh, he's a brilliant musical man mm. and is, um, I haven't got time, actually, I, I may mention him, but mm. uh, 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 Hoffman also, again, is uh, much more uh, kind of, uh, he's later, somewhat later, and, and really exploring, he's more romantic, and exploring the um, the darker sides of the psyche. I mean, this is something I couldn't bring out today because, uh, first of all, I didn't have time, we're coming here from a time, but as you move from the age of Goethe to the age of Novalis, the Himmel and die Nacht, the Hymns to the Night, and so on, um, and there's a very interesting, um, one of the earliest works at all anywhere, a uh, contemporary of Goethe called Karl Gustav, like you, Karl Gustav Karas, called Psyche, the, the Psyche, who really uh, uh, explores um, the realm of what is it called the unconscious, the unconscious uh, as a term comes out of German, as Unbewusstsein. So um, Hoffman fits into that. Mm -hmm. Things like, um, the, 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 the one about Chrysler. He's, he, he explores the more daimonic um, uh, um, science yeah. of the psyche. Uh, and this is, uh, this is a strand that, of course, you could argue, comes out of the Mephistophelian side of Faust, as it were, but then is picked up, for instance, I don't know if any of you know Weber's, it's, unfortunately it's in play, so I think it's a great opera, Der uh, Freischutz, the Marksman. Yes. Uh, with, with, with the hero who sells his soul to Zamiel, the dark god for the for magic silver bullet. Well, this, it, it's the romantics really, and Hoffman fits into this, who begin to explore the darker side of the psyche. But, uh, as with Edgar Allan Poe and that, also contributed a vast amount, I gather, to people like Baudelaire and the beginnings of the French symbolism movement. Navalis, incidentally, was a key figure, I'm getting to know much more about this now, um, uh, for the French symbolists. In fact, uh, Novalis, Wagner, uh, Hoffman, those three figures are key, you have to go, yes, uh, uh, are, are key figures on the bridge between the German Romantic movement and French symbolism. That's what it's all starts. I was thinking too about your comment about um, the way the arts have been regarded in Germany. Yeah. And the fact you have all, all these theatres, yeah. which are accepted as a way of life, whether or not you go, just as we have sports centres. That's right. That's and right. Um, it's an awful fight to get to have anything of that attitude taken seriously in this country. Yes, you can't get this here at all this way. It, it, this is why it's, it's a totally different tradition. Yeah. And what I try to do to bring out this evening also is also that the um, basically, as I see it, more and more. It's a difference between uh, what you might call British empiricism, the empirical tradition, looking at facts and, 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 and utilities, but not going farther than that. Yeah. And that the Germans found that the empirical, although they took it on board with Canton, that they had to begin with this, and they don't avoid the empirical world, they find it, it, it isn't enough. It doesn't give you any answers to the main questions of life. Uh, but, of course, if you keep to an empirical line on life. First of all, I think empiricism, one man can see, doesn't structure what you see yeah. at all. It just leaves it freewheeling and then you... 
you have your choices if you pick out of a parameter, you then put it together. Also, of course, as Blake knew more than anybody, it gives you a passive model of the mind, that you are es essentially receptive to things the mind isn't producing and creating like a fountain. Mm -hmm. This is amazing that British empiricism has survived and still dominates, even if you like. Well, this is, this is, this is certainly uh, uh, true. And, and, and um, what I find more and more, which is quite interesting, is that they, that so many people are not aware of this. They're totally unaware that this way of thinking is not universal. Mm. And it isn't. Yeah. This is one of the things I've been trying to show this evening. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Thank you. 
That's not a tall cat's